Um, Today's scripture comes from Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 to 25. And please stand if you're able for the reading of God's word. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Kathy, for reading God's word to us, and welcome to all of you who've gathered to worship the Lord together today. It's great to be with you, um, even to hear you singing and singing with you. Uh, What a joy it is on this beautiful day to be together, and uh, congratulations once again to... uh, to Jason and Sana and little Jackson, who get to welcome a beautiful little girl into their family. This is, uh, this is the beginning of the wave, just so you know. We've got a lot of babies coming. And, uh, and, and, uh, and Sana, Sana and Jason uh, and little Jordan um, have just begun the wave for us of uh, babies this coming new year, God willing. Um, We're going to talk in a few weeks about the joy that we have as a church to grieve together and to rejoice together. And so with the announcements of births like this, it's just another chance for us to rejoice together. We've got plenty of reasons to grieve together too, folks, but God gives us amazing opportunities to celebrate together. Praise God for that. So three weeks ago, we began to walk through our church covenant. Our church covenant is a set of promises that we've made as members of New Hope Fellowship. So if you're a member of this church, you have made these promises to each other and to God himself. So again, if you're a member of New Hope Fellowship, this this series is an opportunity for all of us to reaffirm and renew our covenant commitments. If you're a guest here today, or if you haven't joined New Hope as a a member yet, this is still relevant for you. I hope you'll see that this is a chance, on the one hand, for you just to learn more about what New Hope is about, who we are as a church, and what we're aiming for, what we're trying to do as a church and be as a church. But also, um, I think that everything that we're going to be talking about over the next several weeks is relevant for anyone who wants to know more about what it looks like to follow Jesus. Whether you are already following Jesus or you're considering following Jesus, the things we're talking about give insight and and help to know how and what it looks like to be a disciple of Christ and a child of God in this world. Well, we're coming to the fourth line in our covenant today, and the fourth line of our covenant reads this way. It says, we will not forsake the assembling of ourselves together, nor neglect to pray for ourselves and others. We will not, on the one hand, forsake the assembling of ourselves together, nor will we neglect to pray for ourselves and others. We might summarize the line this way. We are promising here our presence and our prayers. That's what we're promising to each other and we're promising to God. 
our presence and our prayers. We're promising to be present and we're promising to pray. We're making this promise to God and to one another to offer our presence and prayers. Now notice this line does not say, does not say we will never ever miss the assembling of ourselves together. That would be burdensome, wouldn't it? To say, I will never ever, as a member of this church, I will never ever miss a gathering of this church. Who can promise something like that? None of us can. Nor, well, and what it does say, in fact, instead, is it says we will not forsake the assembling of ourselves together. We will not forsake. Forsake doesn't just mean miss. Forsake means to renounce. Forsake means to quit. If you forsake someone that you love, it doesn't mean that you leave for a little while. It means you say, this is it. I'm done. I'm done with you. To turn away from, to quit. Notice also this line doesn't say we will never ever forget to pray for ourselves and for others. Again, who could honestly say that? I will never. I have never ever forgotten to pray for myself and for others. None of us could say that. What the line says is that we will never, that we will not neglect. We will not neglect. Neglect means to give very little attention to. Neglect means to regularly, carelessly leave something undone or uncared for. Think about what it means to neglect your health or to neglect uh, your children. So what we've promised here in this covenant is to stay committed to gathering and to praying. It's a vow. It's a vow to regularly get together. And it's a vow to pray for ourselves and for others even when we're not together. To use the helpful language that Joe used last week, what this line in the covenant describes is, is a posture, a posture of the, of the heart. Um, and, and I'd say it's also describing a pattern, a pattern of life. In other words, what we're saying is that we will make our presence in the gathering of the church and we will make prayer for others and for ourselves a priority. A priority. We're going to engage in these things with, with intentionality and with regularity so that, so that there's a pattern, right? If someone looks at our life or if you look at your own life, you'll be able to see there's a rhythm here. There's a rhythm of consistent gathering and a consistent rhythm of prayer. Doesn't mean it's perfect or unbroken, but it's noticeable. It's predictable. It's a pattern. Now, when I first read this line in the covenant, I thought, I wonder why these, are two, these two things are, are paired together. We will not forsake the assembling of ourselves, gathering with, with the church, and we will not neglect to pray for one another. And I think one of the reasons, it may not be the only reason, but one of the reasons that these are paired together is because they, they show us what it looks like to have a commitment to both corporate worship and private worship. Corporate worship and private worship. What I mean by corporate worship is worship together, right? Corporate means as a body, gathered, united. We're we're promising here to worship together, but we're also saying I'm going to worship privately too when I'm on my own, even when I'm not with the church. I'm going to pray for the church. I'm going to pray for other people outside the church. I'm going to pray for the people in my life because this is part of what it looks like to be a follower of Jesus and a child of God. So if you look at my life, you'll see, this is what we're saying, we'll see a, a pattern of Worship together and private worship as well. 
and it'll be regular. And I would argue it'll be habitual. It'll be habitual. This, this, this commitment to approach God together and individually in order to intercede for people and to intercede for ourselves. One thing that makes this line in the covenant different from all the other lines, I don't know if you'll find this interesting. I did. It's the only one that's stated negatively. It says, we will not. Look at the other. Look at some of the others here. Some of the other lines in the, in, the, uh, in the covenant. We started off with this one. We will work and pray for the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. We, last week, uh, Joe preached to us on the fact that we will walk together in brotherly love. Next week, Che is going to teach us about what it looks like when we say that we will endeavor to bring up those that at any time be under our care and the nurture and admonition of the Lord. In other words, we will raise our families to know Jesus. So most of them, all of the other ones are we will do this, we will do this. The one we're looking at today is the only one where we're saying we will not do this. That's the only negative one there. I wondered why. Maybe you have got some thoughts on why. I might be wrong about this, but I, I, I thought maybe, maybe it's because the framers of this covenant knew that we're prone to forsake worship, whether it's gathered worship together or it's private worship alone where no one else can see us. We're, we're prone to neglect it. We're prone to, for long spans of time, just forsake it and stop and so in this covenant, we're calling ourselves to fight against that, that tendency, what may be a very human tendency. In any case, these are foundational practices for living as a follower of Jesus. They really are. They have always been foundational practices for God's people. Joe, Joe mentioned this last week. He told us that, that God's people, historically, did not have their own copies of the Bible, right? We, we, are, we are in the minority as followers of Jesus, if we have our own copies of the Bible. I have multiple copies. I think if I walk into different houses in my, if, if I walk into different rooms in my house and I look hard enough, I can find a Bible somewhere. Most people, most Christians in history were not like this. So personal Bible reading wasn't really a thing for most Christians throughout history. There wasn't a common practice at all for them. But but gathering with the church was. And so was praying for ourselves and for others. Those things were always there amongst the community of God's people from the very beginning. If we look at the early church, we'll see that. Let's look at the first century church for just a moment. You can read about it in Acts chapter 2. I invite you to open Acts chapter 2, verse 42, if you have a Bible. But we'll project it up here too. It says, and they, and this is speaking about the, the earliest group of Christians in Jerusalem in the first century. And it's describing the life of that local church. And it's saying, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. That means they were learning, learning, devoted themselves to learning what the apostles taught. And they devoted themselves to the fellowship and to the breaking of bread and the prayers. So, so what were they doing? They were learning. They were engaging in communion together, life together, fellowship. They were praying. And it was all happening within the context of community, within the context of gathering. They were doing these things together. And if we jump to verse 46, it makes it even more explicit there. 
because it says in verse 46, and day by day, look at this, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts. So, so they attended the temple together, all together to worship, but they also met in smaller groups in each other's homes. They got together in their homes to eat together with generous and glad hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who are being saved. So, so here's the pattern we see from the earliest days of what Jesus' church looked like. They attended worship together in the temple, and they also got together in smaller groups in each other's homes to, to break bread to enjoy life together. And what flowed out from this, the text says, was joy. This is what resulted from this pattern of life. Joy and generosity and favor and growth. Isn't that beautiful? Don't we want those things? Joy and generosity and favor and growth. This was not a utopia, by the way. When we read just this section in Acts 2 by itself, we might think that, the life of the early church was just perfect. No, there were problems. There was trouble too. There was trouble inside the church. There was trouble outside the church. But they weren't able to navigate all that. They were able to navigate that trouble. And they were even able to thrive as they continued to offer God and they continued to offer each other their presence and their prayers. Now, originally, what I intended to do today was to teach on both parts of this, uh, this line in our covenant, uh, this commitment to gathering and this commitment to praying, but I can't do that tonight, today. Uh, time's not going to allow me to do that. So look, I, I can't really treat prayer with the attention that, that it deserves today, so I'm going to postpone that. I'm going to punt on it, and um, not because it doesn't matter, but really because it matters too much to... to um, to deal with hurriedly. So, so what we're likely going to do is in, in the new year sometime, we'll have a series in which we look specifically at, we think specifically together about what it means to pray for ourselves and for others and why that matters and how we can do that as a church. All right? So we'll, we'll talk more about prayer in the new year. But today, let's focus on, on the priority of, quote, assembling ourselves together. What does it mean to assemble ourselves together and why does it matter? Way back in 2019, which wasn't that long ago, but it feels like so long ago. It was a pre-COVID world. We, we went through a series, of, a sermon series entitled The Gathering, The Gathering in 2019. And what I tried to do in that series was present a theology of corporate worship. Um, try, to, try to show a biblical foundation, a biblical rationale for why we do what we do as a church when we gather and why it matters. Little did we know that less than a year later, we would suspend our gatherings almost altogether. Our in-person gatherings would be a thing of the past for a long time. Many of us would feel isolated. Perhaps all of us felt isolated for a good long stretch. In any case, during that, that series, I tried to trace the development of gathered worship through the Bible, through the Old Testament, into the New Testament, and give a rationale for, for what gathered worship is all about. And so we did, we looked at a bunch of different topics. We looked at why it is we get together, um, the, the role of the preaching the word and reading God's word in our services, um, the role of the Lord's table in our services, why, why we sing in our services, why we pray in our services, and, and why we give of our time and our resources during our services. So it was in depth. Um, what we're going to do today is, is nothing like, it's a lot more basic today, a lot more basic. 
let's do this today. Let's simply think about why we should cultivate a habit of gathering face-to-face with our church and why it makes sense for this to be a commitment that we make to each other in our covenant, okay? Over the past many years, scientists have made a lot of progress in understanding how the human brain forms habits. It's fascinating how we, how we form habits. A habit is a practice or, or some kind of routine that you repeat and you repeat so often and so regularly that it actually becomes hard to change. It becomes automatic. I'm sure we all have habits here. It could be something as simple as biting your nails when you're nervous. It could be the habit of grabbing a bag of chips whenever you sit down to watch the game. Or multiple bags of chips, I don't know. One uh, important finding has been what researchers call keystone habits. I don't know how many of you, I think I've talked about this in the past, but the concept of keystone habits is is an interesting one. Keystone habits are simple foundational routines that lead to other new patterns and routines. And and they support those new patterns and routines. So a, a keystone habit, there, give me an example of one. Let's say you decide that uh, tomorrow or in the new year, whatever, you're going to start getting up an hour earlier. You're going to set your alarm an hour early. And you thought, this is the perfect time of year to do that because I gained an hour, right? That, that habit, if you cultivate it, could lead to other new habits too. Getting up an hour earlier might lead to you eating better in the morning or having more time with your family or time to exercise in the morning. It might lead you to then start going to bed earlier, etc. Lots of good new habits could be triggered by that one first keystone habit. You see how it works. Or say you decide to, here's a good one, say you decide to stop bringing your phone into your bedroom at night. You decide you're gonna charge your phone somewhere else in the house other than near where you sleep. What could this lead to? It could lead to maybe reading more in bed from an actual like paper book, or if you're married, it could lead to more conversations with your spouse. It might lead to better night's sleep. You get the point, right? With one good keystone habit, you're making it easier to then start a whole new string of practices. And so the researchers say, if you're trying to make large-scale changes in your life, don't try to change a bunch of habits all at once. Instead, try to find a keystone habit. that, If you focus on if you cultivate the habit, it might create a domino effect where other things start changing positively. In light of that, let me invite you to consider the words of David Mathis. He's an author over at Desiring God Ministries. And here's what he wrote in a book that we studied as a church some years ago in our discipleship group. Some of you around him remember this. It's called Habits of Grace is the name of the book. He writes, while I cannot commend one keystone habit that will make the difference for every believer, I do want to speak up on behalf of one weekly habit that is utterly essential to any healthy, life-giving, joy-producing Christian walk, corporate worship. And it is all too often neglected or taken very lightly. In our day of disembodiment and in our proclivity for being noncommittal, in fact, I don't think it's too strong to call corporate worship the single most important habit of the Christian life. That's a a big claim, isn't it? 
I wonder what you make of that claim. I wonder what you make of, of his description of, of us as a culture. He says, we're, 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 we, we tend to live disembodied lives. And what he means by that is that we tend to interact with each other, not face-to-face and present, but via our devices and via computer screens. And he says, we have this proclivity, I should say, to being non-committal, to not wanting to commit to long-term relationships. We want to kind of be independent and autonomous at times. I wonder if you think that's true of our culture. And if it is, how could a commitment to corporate worship make it, change that or, or, or have an influence on the way that we're, we're living? So now I'm going to ask you to keep that claim in mind as we turn to Hebrews chapter 10, the passage that Kathy read for us earlier. In, in Hebrews, before we even look at that passage, in Hebrews, the, the author is reminding his readers that because of what Jesus has done for us, we can now approach God. We can be in the presence of God. Now, many of us may think, well, that's, that's a given. Of course, God made us. Of course, we can be in his presence. No, 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 no. It's not a given. It's not a given. In fact, the fact that we can be, we can enter boldly into the presence of God without fear of being rejected, without fear of being judged or punished, that's a much bigger deal than we might realize. You know, when when God brought his people out of, his people Israel out of Egypt, where they were slaves, he, he told them, I'm going to bring you out of slavery, and I'm going to, and, and I'm going to direct you to build a tabernacle. And, and that's what he did. He told them to build a tabernacle, and that tabernacle was going to be a place where he would meet with them, and he would dwell with them in their presence. But in order for this holy God to, to dwell with his people, in order for them to be able to gather and worship at the tabernacle, they had to first do some things. First, they had to be cleansed. Cleanse of their sins. Their sins had to be atoned for. They were not holy enough to be in the presence of a holy God. So God created a system, a gracious system to make that possible. There were priests, and these priests would purify themselves first because they themselves were unpure. They were sinners too, just like the rest of them. They would purify themselves, and, and then they, they would, through these ceremonies, and, and, and only then, only then could they pass this, this curtain Get behind that curtain into the holiest part of the tabernacle where they could offer sacrifices. Offer sacrifices on behalf of the people so that the people too could approach God. You see, the the process was complicated and it was bloody and it was laborious. And this is what had to happen in order for God's people to be able to approach him without being consumed. But in the book of Hebrews... In this book of Hebrews, the author is reminding us that all that has changed. Praise be to God, all that has changed. Jesus, the new and the better great high priest, he has offered one sacrifice, a final sacrifice for the sins of all his people, for the sins of everyone who will believe in him. And his sacrifice was himself. Hebrews 7.27, we're not going to read it, but speaks of this. It speaks of the fact that for centuries the priests would bring in animals and sacrifice them annually. And they would also perform other sacrifices regularly. 
They had to offer sacrifices for their own sins and for the sins of the people until finally Jesus, this great high priest, comes. And he offers, and he doesn't come to the place of sacrifice carrying a lamb. He is the priest and the lamb without blemish. He offers himself once for all, and sin is atoned for. So that now anyone who believes in him can enter the presence of God. Anyone who believes in him can enter the presence of God. Now look at what it says in Hebrews 10, verse 19. Therefore, that is because, because this is true, because Jesus has done what he has done, and we now have access to God without fear of being consumed by judgment. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh. His flesh was torn and pierced for us, and so that curtain was ripped down, the curtain that separates us from a holy God. Verse 21, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, that's Jesus, let us draw near. Let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed pure with pure water. He's saying, since Jesus has made it possible for us to draw near, um, let's draw near. Simple, right? Let, let's, let's draw near and let's do it with, with a full assurance that if you have believed in Jesus and you've been purified, you have been forgiven, you have been cleansed and washed, you have nothing to fear. Your conscience can be clean before God who knows you fully. He knows the worst things you've done. He knows the things that you hope no one will ever find out about. He knows the things that fill you with shame because others have found out about them. He says, no, you've believed in my son. Come in. You're welcome. You're pure. You've been washed. You know, the book of Hebrews is filled with language like this. It's, it, it keeps showing us again and again how Jesus Christ, that new and better high priest, he changed the way that we interact with God now. He tells us that, that we can have our sins forgiven by believing in Jesus and, 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 and his sacrifice for us. And not only that, not only that, not only can we approach the presence of God without fear, but God has promised that if we have believed in Jesus, then he has given us his spirit who is present in us all the time. All the time. So now all of God's people have intimate access to him. All of God's people get to experience his personal presence. Praise be to God. Praise be to God. Now, now there's a chance that if you're anything like me, you might read that passage that I just read in Hebrews 10 and read it very individually or individualistically even. That's the way I've read it at times. Like I look at it and I say, yes, I can have intimate communion with God. Yes, I don't have, I don't need a priest to mediate between me and God. And that's true. I can have an intimate relationship with him. I have access. Yes, it's all true. But, but, here's what we might miss if we don't pay attention. What the author of Hebrews is telling us is all about our access to God as a people, as a family, 
What he's talking about is the access that we have to God as a church, corporately, the way that we are connected to the Lord. And this becomes clear if we read down verse 24. He says, if all of that is true, if everything that Jesus has done, he has really done, and you know how have access to, to God, look at what he says in verse 24. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Remember, to neglect something means to pay little attention to it. It means to be careless about it, to act as if it doesn't matter, to be distracted from it. To the point where it languishes. And so the author of Hebrews is saying, don't neglect to meet together. Don't neglect it. For one thing, this privilege of gathering together in the presence of God cost Jesus his life. And so he's saying our response to this, this newfound connection that we have with God, our response is, is to, to not neglect our connection with each other. You now have this connection with God that's inseparable. Do not neglect your connection with one another. Because we can now enter the presence of God freely, confidently. He says, so enter the presence of God, but do it together. Do it together. Offer your presence to one another even as you offer your presence to God. This is the call of Hebrews 10. We were talking about habits just before. This happens to be the only place in the Bible that I know of where the word habit shows up. It's right there in verse 24. It says, don't neglect to meet together as is the habit of some. some for some people, it's become automatic. It's become normal to not meet together for, for spans of time. He says, replace that habit with a new habit, a new habit of regular, consistent assembling ourselves together. Now, now there are different ways that we can meet together as a church, aren't there? The passage we looked at in, in, um, in Acts chapter 2 described the church doing, uh, attending the temple, uh, attending the, the temple together but also breaking bread in their homes. So it's both ends, right? It's gathered worship in the temple. This is not a temple, but it's a, it's a space where we gather to worship. But it also includes gathering and breaking bread in one another's homes or in or restaurants, I suppose, or anywhere else. So meeting in smaller groups and homes, but also gathering together in the place of worship. I would suggest to you that both of these matter. And both of these are, are meant to be habits for followers of Jesus, both of them. Historically, they've both been habits for followers of Jesus. Gathering with God's people to worship on Sunday and being together in smaller settings during the week, it's, it's, it's meant to shape us and, and reorient us. When we get together with brothers and sisters in Christ, doesn't it remind us Reminds us of what's really true and what really matters. When we get together in this room and we hear God speak to us and speak to him, as we sing to him and we sing about him, we're reminded that he's Lord. And no one else is Lord.
We're reminded that his promises are true. When we get together and we sing some of the songs that we sang today, thank you, worship team, for leading us in those songs. When we hear God's word read to us and someone gets up here and prays for a family, the Che prays for the Weesees and we entrust them to the Lord. With all of this, we're being reminded that God is trustworthy and good. And, and for some of us, that's coming off a week where we feel let down by many people. Some of us may feel betrayed and hurt by many people. We maybe feel terribly disappointed in ourselves, our own failures, the ways that we have hurt and let down others. And we come in here and we hear about a God and we sing about a God who's trustworthy in every way, whose promises are always, always true, and he will fulfill every one of them. We gather as a church, we're reminded that we're no longer under condemnation because he accepts us, more than accepts us, he delights in us, he likes us. We're reminded that Jesus died and rose again for us. And and we're reminded that the only place that we can place our hope, really, the only safe place to put our hope is in him. We're reminded that his kingdom is bigger than us and it's bigger than whatever it is that we're tempted to, to, to build for ourselves and his kingdom's bigger and better than the things that we tend to chase and put our hope in and cherish. And gathering with God's people to worship, whether it's on Sundays like this or gathering in smaller groups with his people, it can help shape us. You know, one of the results that, that I, I believe comes from sustained gathering with God's people over time and engaging in corporate worship, I think one of the things that comes from it over time is wisdom. I think it shapes us into wise people. I think that, that as we gather with other people who are on, on the journey of growing more and more into the image, like becoming more and more like Jesus, we, in process, become more and more like Jesus. We start to, to, we start to absorb his way of thinking his way of seeing the world. The opposite of that is true too. Proverbs 18.1 says, whoever isolates himself seeks his own desire. He breaks out against all sound judgment. You see, there's a connection here between isolation and foolishness, unwise, unsound judgment. Isolation leads to the opposite of good judgment, it says. It leads to selfish, foolish choices. But gathering together to hear God's word, to study God's word, to remind each other of what God says and promises. Yeah, these, these things protect us and they promote growth and wisdom. Corporate worship reminds us of our true relationship to God. You know, the, those ancient Israelites, whenever they would gather at the tabernacle, they would have to remember we are sinners who need a sacrifice. They had to. We are sinners who need sacrifice to atone for our sins. And, and that's us too. We, we, we gather with a similar mindset, but our mindset could be a slightly different. And it really, really, it's a big difference. You see, we gather remembering that atonement has already been made, that it's finished, that there's no guilt to be paid for anymore. We gather remembering that we were loved by our Father, a Father who, who, who longs to have us near. If you haven't trusted in Jesus yet, 
That can be true for you. If you haven't trusted in Jesus yet, maybe, maybe coming to church is difficult because you just keep hearing about sin and you keep hearing about failings. and Maybe, maybe you walk away feeling guilty. Please know that what Jesus longs for you to know is that what he did was for you. That he offers you access to a loving father who accepts and will never reject you, who will never hurt you, who, who you can trust. If you'll simply believe in him. When we gather here, or even when we gather in care groups or in discipleship groups, we just gather around each other's tables. We're, we're also reminded that we're not alone. We're reminded that as Jesus' people, we are part of something bigger, something lasting and eternal. We're accepted. We're accepted not just by God, but we're accepted by one another. I, I hope this feels like a place where you, I hope this is a place where you feel accepted and loved. And I hope that that, that that sense of acceptance that you felt, maybe, maybe even just a little bit of it when you first started gathering with this church, I hope that it only increases, and I hope that it leads you to want to invite people more deeply into your life, to expose a little bit more of your life to one another and get to know others better. I do believe that this is a place where we can find acceptance, we can find healing. And many of us walk out, we walk in here out of, after a week of feeling like we're competing with folks, competing, just trying to keep our head above water, or maybe feeling like, like we're not being treated right, we're not accepted by those outside. Maybe we feel like in the workplace or in the school, in the school context, or wherever it is, you feel hated, slandered, looked down upon criticized. I hope that the gatherings of New Hope Fellowship will be a place where you'll find acceptance and healing. All week long, we, we hear about wars and rumors of wars. It's overwhelming, isn't it? The tragedies, the atrocities, it's the unspeakable evil leaves us confused and overwhelmed. And we can try to like distract ourselves from all that, but that doesn't go very well, does it? How, where does that lead us if we just try to distract ourselves with whatever? More fun, games, alcohol, video content, whatever our devices can do to distract us. Where does that lead us? So it doesn't leave us feel, does it, when, you, when you're distracting yourself from the atrocities of the world using this thing, this, this phone, or, or whatever else, do you find that it it leaves you feeling less anxious in the long run? Do you find that it helps you sleep better at night? Do you find that you feel more steady and at peace as a result? I was going to read some, some results of uh, studies on how screen time affects our moods and our, and our mental health, but I don't think I need to do that. I think we all kind of know. When we gather here, it's not to distract ourselves from what's going on in the world. 
We don't gather here to hide our heads, to stick our heads in the sand and pretend all is okay. No, no, no. On the contrary, when we gather as God's people to worship, it's an opportunity for us to raise our heads above, above the, the fog, the fog of, of, of war and evil, and raise our heads above that to see what's, what's beyond it, to see that, there, that the Lord is not absent, that the Lord is on his throne, and he's, he will accomplish justice in this world. We gather as a church to find our hope in him again. And as Hebrews 10 says, we gather here so we can be encouraged and stirred up. Stirred up to love others well. Stirred up to love and live well. As we learn from his word, as we learn from each other. Each time we gather, we have an opportunity to encourage and stir up one another to believe, and to live like we believe, even as his day draws near, even as his return, the writer of Hebrews says, even as Jesus' return draws near. Many, many things are competing for our time and attention, New Hope. When we became members of this church, we recognized that. We knew that, and we still said, we will not forsake the assembling of ourselves together. We, we knew it would be hard. We said, it'll, it'll be hard, but, but we want to foster the, and maintain this habit of, of offering each other and offering God our presence. Because in Christ, God has offered us his presence. It's no doubt that the demands of life are going to take us away at times. It's unavoidable. It's normal. But we're committing here to keep pushing back against that. We're committing, in a sense, to be fully present. We can't always be present here physically, whether it's work or other things take us away. But we still can commit to a pattern of prioritizing our presence here. And you know what else we can commit to? That when we're present here, we'll really be present here. Like, you know what I mean. You, You can be present without being present. My wife does this thing with me sometimes where she'll start to tell me something. And um, I'm listening, but for some reason, I'll start looking at my phone. I start doing this. I start looking at my phone. And then it just goes silent. She stops talking. And I ask her, what, what happened? And she won't say anything. And I'll put down my phone, and she'll just continue, right? As soon as I put it down, she'll be like, oh, you know, she'll pick up where she left off. And the whole, the whole idea, we've talked about it. It's like, why am I going to talk to you when you're not present? Like, that, that makes no sense. I'm not a crazy woman, right? Why would I talk to someone who's not here? Isn't it possible for us to be present with others and be miles and miles away. And the tr- same truth goes for here when we gather as God's people. And so I want to encourage you, as, as, as um, petty as this might sound, I, I hope it's helpful. I want to encourage you to think about this place as a place where when we gather with God's people, we're going to set aside distractions. Again, we're not coming in here to be distracted from the world. We're coming in here to be reoriented and reminded of what's true and real. And in order for us to do that, we need to stop being distracted by those things that are outside or that we brought in with us here. That's my timer. And so, and so, I want to encourage us to offer each other our real presence and to offer God our real presence when we gather as his people, to set aside distractions, whatever they might be, devices, whatever, shut them off, put them away. Maybe even, maybe even say, you know, I want to, I want to get in the room a little bit early, and I just want to pray. I want to, I want to engage God. I want to speak to him and settle my heart before things even start moving in here. 
If you get here early, you'll find that the, the worship team is, is uh, rehearsing, they're playing, and it's a great environment to sit and pray in and prepare. I want to encourage us to not walk into any gathering in the church as a, simply as a spectator or consumer. If we do that, then we've missed the point. But instead, to come in and say, Father, Father, what do you have to say to us today? What are you going to communicate to us through the songs we sing and the readings we hear and the prayers we pray and everything else that happens? And, and Lord, what would you have me say to stir up and encourage a brother or sister today? What would you have me say today? Stir up someone who's having trouble believing, to encourage someone that's having trouble persevering. Let's commit ourselves to that new hope. And we'll end this way. Let's just read, read that last line together from our, uh, and let's read this in dependence on the Lord. I invite you to read aloud with me. We will not forsake the assembling of ourselves together, nor neglect to pray for ourselves and others. Amen. Amen. Uh, Father, some of us are, are we, we, we had a hard time even getting here this, this afternoon. We thank you for, for bringing us together nevertheless. We ask, Father, that for those of us in this body who are having trouble bringing themselves to, to commit to gathering, even in, in small groups like care groups or discipleship groups, and they feel that, that urge towards isolation. I don't know where it might be coming from, Lord. It might be coming from, from just overwork or sadness or distraction. Who knows, Lord? You know, you know. I ask, Father, that you'd call all of us back, call us back towards this commitment to presence with one another and with you. Press on us the weight of this commitment, but more than that, Lord, press on us the, the great joy, the value of being together to worship you. In the name of the Son and the power of the Spirit, give us, give us a patient, humble trust that, that over the long haul, you will use these gatherings to form us and to form our families according to your will. We ask that our gatherings as a church would be a safe place for all, for all, a healing place, a place of acceptance, a place where lies are challenged, a place where sins are confessed and forgiven, and where hope is offered and hope is received. In Jesus' name, amen.